Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Okay, so we'll pick up uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 1. We're starting off a new book. Uh, we're not starting off a new section of the Bible. Uh, Judges, Ruth, and the first part of Samuel are all happening during the period of time between Joshua and the first king, Saul, uh, which is a, a roughly a 350-year period of time where the judges ruled. So Samuel is not only the last and final judge, um, and, and the structure of his narrative is set up as the other judges, but he also becomes the first of the nation's prophets. So in the era of kings, each of the kings also had a, a, a prophet that would be um, speaking on behalf of God to the king throughout the rule of the king. So Samuel becomes the first prophet that will come in and advise uh, the first kings. Um, being kind of the voice piece of the, of the Levites, and Samuel is a Levite. But anyways, let's get into the chapter, um, and we will, uh, we will look at this just amazing historical account of Israel and how Israel got its uh, first king starting here. Now, verse 1, Now there was a certain man of uh, Ramathaim, uh, Jotham, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, and the son of Eliu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. The name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had, no ch had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And also the two sons of Eli, Hophni, Phinehas, and the priests of the Lord were there. And wherever the time came to, for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was, year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. So first, uh, just a little context on Samuel. First and second Samuel and first and second Kings we're all called the books of the kings in, in, in the Hebrew or the, the, the rabbinical traditions. So uh, according to the Jews, uh, these four, what we call four books, were actually the books of the kings. Likely they were all on four different scrolls. So as the scrolls were moved, they would mark them. This is the first Samuel scroll, the first, second Samuel scroll, and then we get into the kings, Saul and David, first kings, second kings, and, and the records of the kingship of Israel. And these Books of the Kings take us all the way to, um, uh, to, to the, the Jewish people being hauled off to Babylon. So we have an era between the judges and between the exile uh, that this Books of the Kings covers. So this next period of history in Israel's history. Samuel's um, going to be the first one to start composing these very detailed histories. So judges, we kind of get narratives that would have been passed along and then brought to the temple as, hey, God's still moving among us stories. And those God stories got written down and they were captured in, in the books of Judges and Ruth and, and even the first part of Samuel here. But Samuel as kind of this 
judge, one of the dynasties of Samuel is he starts writing things down in great detail. So we have much more um, kind of an elaborate history. It, in between Kings and Chronicles, we actually get two histories with slightly different um, intentions in their writing around the same period of time. So they overlap with each other. And by the way, that's not it's fine where they conflict with each other. It's actually when you get two historical sources saying largely the same things, they actually confirm each other. So histor his historically, when you get two documents around the same historical event, that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Um, and we see that the Bible has this internally confirming uh, aspect of having kind of these two histories. Well, Samuel starts all that. Um, and the idea of the kings is this. If it wasn't for the kings and the prophets, Samuel being the first prophet, we don't have a throne for a Messiah to take. So if you're looking at the whole world history kind of thing, the key relevance of what's going on here is that for the Messiah to be our king and our high priest, we've got a high priest uh, already in place. And we're going to see Eli right now during Samuel is, is the high priest. So we, we have a high priest from the time of Joshua, and, and, and really Moses and Aaron um, were, were set up a tabernacle, and that all gets kind of built in, in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So the high priesthood is there, from the, for, not from the time of Joshua, from the time of Moses, and then moving through, and Joshua actually has it in place and hands it over to Israel to keep it. Um, so as we go through the period of Judges, there is a place in Shiloh where the tabernacle sits, verse 3. Um, and that's the central place of worship for all of Israel. All of Israel should be making trips to Shiloh to celebrate as a country. So a huge, massive, million-person family get-together every year at the tabernacle. But we're in the time of Judges, and we saw from Judges that we had families that were just setting up their own shrines. We had entire tribes like the tribe of Dan just going off doing their own thing. So what we see at the beginning of Samuel is a lot like Ruth, Here's a group of people doing what the Lord asks of them as far as they know. So it says he goes up to the temple in Shiloh um, yearly to worship and sacrifice. That's, he's supposed to do that. This is likely the, the Feast of Tabernacles that he's going up for. And there's this, but there are three major feasts that he should be going to Shiloh for. So it says he went up annually to do it. That's not a contradiction. We're in the time of Judges. The general population of Israel is doing whatever they think is right in their own eyes. And Elkanah is doing what he thinks is right based on what the people of God are telling him. And God, there's nothing in here that indicates that he's doing anything wrong because I don't think the Lord punishes ignorance, right? And just because he doesn't know that there's two other feasts he should be going up for, the text here just says he's going up, a man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. So he's likely giving his tithe. Right? He's coming up once a year to give his, his, his annual first fruits uh, to the temple, and he's supporting the temple and the tabernacle, as was, uh, was told by God to Moses through Aaron and has been uh, passed along to them with Joshua as he read the law to the people of Israel. He's doing, uh, he's doing his due diligence as he should, as compared to the people in Judges who really aren't. When it says Ramathim Zophim in verse 1, that's the longer name for what later is going to be called Rama in verse 19. It's about five, six miles from Jerusalem. It's about 11 miles away from where Ruth and Naomi were, were uh, um, coming into Boaz's household uh, in Bethlehem. 
So we're talking about an extremely small area of, of, of the world here, and it's fairly close to Shiloh. <clears throat> so when it says the mountains of Ephraim in verse 1, it's really letting us know that this is another small town. <laughs> but what's important here is it's in the mountain of Ephraim. It's in the same kind of area. And so we've got the story of Ruth from that area. We've got Ephraim from that area. We've got some of the judges coming from that area. Because it's so close to Shiloh, these are the God stories that made it into the record. So, you know, and, and not only that, but this area of Israel, this very small area of Israel within 10 miles, 10, 11 miles of each other, is where a lot of God's interactions with the nation are going to happen. Eventually, Shiloh is going to get moved. The tabernacle and the, the ark is going to get moved to Jerusalem under King David. Uh, and Jerusalem will become the place or, where there will reside and where, the, where there will be a temple that gets built under Solomon. So Elkanah, meaning God created, uh, get, we get this little genealogy here in verse 1. And, and the genealogy, I think, is here to tell us that if he's the son of Zuf, that's one of the chief families, a Korathite, that means he's a Levite. And when it says an Ephraimite, it doesn't mean that he's from the tribe of, of Ephraim. It means that he's in the mountains of Ephraim or he's in that area. So he would be a Levite, Zuf, assigned to the area of Ephraim, uh, which is where he's at, the mountains of Ephraim. Unlike the traveling Levite uh, that we saw in Judges, he's, he's where he's assigned. Um, so when he's doing this as a Levite, you know, you got basically a, a small town pastor that's going to the, uh, the national convention uh, and, and, and going up to Shiloh and doing his thing and uh, just a, a man of God. Uh, again, he's a product of his culture here. It says he has two wives in verse 2. Uh, two wives is not uh, God's plan. We see that Jesus clarifies that. This isn't uh, God made male and female, and they should be one uh, and together. Uh, we see historically uh, polygamy is just not an issue in the ancient world. Uh, a lot of men are going off to war. They're fighting. They're dying, uh, leaving uh, far more females in the population than there are males. Uh, so you have a life expectancy during this period of history. Men, the life expectancy of men was somewhere in the 30s. Uh, so for men to grow old meant they had some wisdom. Um, but we see that uh, here we have Elkanah uh, from the line of Korah, First Chronicles 6, uh, having two wives, which is, is not good. Uh, the Bible, whenever it presents polygamy, presents problems, and we, that's no exception here. Uh, Penina, meaning jewel, and Hannah, meaning grace. Uh, we see a conflict that's set up. The conflict's really clear in verse 2. Uh, we have uh, two wives, Hannah Penaniah, meaning Hannah was likely the first wife because she's listed first. But then notice the second, the next sentence, Penanah had, no, had children and Hannah had none. So when it comes to the order of wifehood, Hannah is first. When it comes to the order of who has the most children, Penanah is winning that, that road race. And remember with Jewish women, this is a big deal. Because the promise is, through the woman, there will be born a Savior that will conquer sin and death. This goes all the way back to Genesis. So the idea that the, any given Jewish woman might be the one who bears that child meant childbirth was, culturally speaking, a much bigger deal. So Penina, she's mean, and we see her heart here because she's, verse 6, she's a rival that provokes Hannah, provokes Hannah severely. This is polygamy. It's not a good thing, and it never it gets framed that way. Um, so there, there, there is this conflict between these two women. Uh, they are um, absolutely at each other's throat, and to the point of where, where it is a torturing kind of thing. Think of Penina as just a brutal 
mean girl bully, and she just won't let Hannah have the end of it. Why? We see that in the text too. Um, we see, A, because the Lord closed her womb, meaning God has control over childbirth. In this particular case, the Lord closed the womb is accurate because the Lord's going to later open her womb, and we'll see that Hannah really doesn't have a problem with having kids. The, the, the thing in the way was that the Lord had a bigger plan. And sometimes when women can't have kids, it's not because of a curse. It's because God actually has a plan for that woman that doesn't involve kids. Or it doesn't, in Hannah's case, doesn't involve kids right now. Um, so we do see that the Lord controls that process, which for both women who have had children, they should see that as a blessing. And for women who haven't had children, they should see that as the Lord's plan, as it is truthfully in the word presented. Um, but here's the conflict. Even though Peninnah has bore more children, which she thinks is the bigger deal, Elkanah gives Hannah a double portion in verse 5. And it is clear that Elkanah attends to and tunes in to Hannah, his first wife, for he loved Hannah, verse 5. And that's where Peninnah is bitter and angry because she's making the kids, but she doesn't have the affection and love of the man Elkanah. And this is, again, the problem with polygamy is that there's going to be this comparison thing that happens. It's not good. Uh, in verse 3, I'm kind of doing this out of order, it says, also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. Okay, this is not a good thing. We're going to see in chapter 2 that Hophni and Phinehas are wicked, wicked men. Eli is still there too. Um, so Eli is going to be the priest that, that, we in, that interacts with this particular family. Um, but we are also seeing this as a dating piece, which we know we're in the period of Judges when we're looking at those particular priests. So we thank the writer for adding that little detail for us. Um, it says that they went down to worship and sacrifice. Um, those are two different things. And I think this is important as we understand what God's intention for our worship and sacrifice are, is that we know what they meant and we know what they look like from the word. Uh, worship, shakah in the Hebrew uh, is um, and, and Zebka to bow down uh, is to, to bow down to worship and to offer something, sacrifice. So to worship is a state of our heart where we bow down and we honor God by taking our own life and our own things and we, we submit those underneath God in truth because God is Lord and King. So to worship is to honor that relationship. To sacrifice is to offer, pure and simple, it's to give something up that costs us something. And so throughout the Bible, worship and sacrifice look really different. Um, worship of the heart, sacrifice of the things of this world that we are letting go uh, for the sake of God. Um, I don't want to go too far down this path, um, but we're, we're in the, on Sunday mornings, we're also in Matthew, and we just got done with the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, and Jesus really lays out like, look, you can do Christian things. You can do worship and sacrifice. But you can do them with the wrong heart, and God doesn't smile upon that. I mean, that's kind of the point of, of chapter 6 of Matthew. And you can do praying, fasting, uh, giving to the Lord, tithing, and, and, and you can give your sacrifices. But if you do it with the wrong heart, or if you're just doing it as an actor or a hypocrite in the Greek, um, you're, you're, fooling yourself, you're, you're fooling yourself, but you're not fooling God at all. In America today, we have a crisis when it comes to worship and sacrifice. God asks us to meet locally once a week. He asks us this as far back as the Old Testament, and the disciples did the same. They met regularly um, and, and studied the Word of God together. 
and he asked us to meet kind of as a community monthly, have some bigger monthly get-together where we can fellowship. And then there's these annual feasts at the temple that Elkanah's going up for. And Elkanah's going up for one of the three, likely because his, his, as a Levite, that's just, it's just the three feasts aren't being taught or practiced. So we already see that kind of that falling apart. Um, but when he's going up yearly, we should read that as he's following the law as presented to him by the Levites and by the community of Levites that's there. Why does he do that? Because it's worship and sacrifice. It's not convenient for him to go up. It says he left his city, went up from his city yearly. That means it's a trip and it's a chore and it takes you away from other things that the world says are have-tos. And that vow to worship and sacrifice is a key vow uh, that differentiates Elkanah from other people in his generation. He makes it into the Word of God, uh, and other people don't. And largely that's because the people that are faithful in the small things, like attending and doing the pieces you're supposed to do, um, God honors that, and he sees that as a sacrifice. It is an act of worship when other things that are being called upon you get set aside because there's things you've made sacred, consecrated, or even holy set apart for God. And when we make things holy and set apart for God, then they become part of how we live. It's what defines Elkanah as a godly man here. It's the faithfulness of week in, week out, doing what God's asked, not out of religiosity, but out of a love of our God and faith. And again, the Sermon on the Mount really touches on this strongly. So <clears throat> this idea that we would do that and follow God and honor God in our attendance, in our tithing, uh, those are pieces that are we're losing in, in the modern church. And they're just not being taught to us. Um, and we can, of course, God doesn't punish ignorance if we're not being taught how to do things. But when we study God's word and we see what it is, there should be a, a reaction like in Ezra. There should be a, a weeping like, oh my goodness, these are all the things God has asked and we're not doing any of them. And so th that's one of those things that, uh, um, that Elkanah does. He's, he's going up and giving his, his time and his, his resources. He's bringing his whole family with him. That takes some effort. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a working vacation because he's a Levite. He's up to do his part. Um, so that idea that we need to be faithful in the small things, Luke 19, uh, 11, is, is, is important. Uh, God, Jesus goes out of his way to point out how important that day in, day out. We think it's not a big deal, but God thinks it is a big deal. It, it reveals our heart when we worship and we do things the way God has said to do them. Um, so... Um, it says in verse 4 that he gives portions. That's an important concept here. And I, I want to jump to Nehemiah. <clears throat> and uh, I'm sorry, not Ezra, Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 8, if you want to turn there. Uh, 8 to 12 are the verses I'm going to read. Uh, this is important context. Uh, we want to know what does this look like for Israel. So when it just says he went up to Shiloh and he gave portions, um, we get a little closer view of that in Nehemiah. And they're coming back into Israel after the exile here. And they, in verse 8, in Nehemiah 8, 8, they read distinctly from the book. So they're going back in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. So what they would do when they go up there is they would bring their sacrifices, but the worship was to read God's word. So it wasn't to sing songs. That idea of worship being the singing of songs is a, a modern church idea. The Bible presents worship as anything that you are setting aside for God. And if you're setting aside time to study the word, you're actually showing up to church every week faithfully, that's an act of worship in the Bible. And so reading distinctly from the book is an act of worship. Yes, I'm going to keep myself awake. I'm going to study. I'm going to understand this because I, God tells me if I learn his word, there's a blessing in it. 
And those people that study God's Word generally start from the beginning and study the Word all over again because there is a blessing in it. Uh, Nehemiah 8, verse 9, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord our God. Do not mourn or weep. This is important for our story with Hannah. For all the people wept, and when they heard the words of the law, and then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions. This is what we got in our verses. Send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to the Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Okay, we love these verses in Nehemiah. They, go, they get painted on walls and things like that. But we get this image of the point of this day every year was to read the Bible, understand the reading, and part of, Eli, or part of Elkanah's job as a Levite would be to help his people make sure they understood what was just read. So Eli the priest or his sons might be reading from the scriptures, but then they would take breaks and, and Elkanah's job would be to make sure his family understood what just got read. So that responsibility of the Levites is really clear when we read Nehemiah. But then there's a piece here too. They don't just read the word, understand the word. They weep because they feel guilty of the parts of it they're not doing because under the law, we're convicted. But the point of the conviction isn't just to have shame. The point of the conviction, I think we see in Nehemiah too, is where the, the Levites and the Ezra and Nehemiah, they're all on the same page and they teach, this is the day, this day is holy to the Lord your God, do not mourn or weep. The point of knowing our shortcomings under the law isn't to sit in them, it's to repent, get right with God, and be rejoyed or to take on joy one more time. So when we come to God with a broken heart, the idea is to, to fix that broken heart, not to just sit and wallow in our shame, right? So you eat, the, you eat the fat, you drink the sweet. Those are the best parts of the fellowship offering when they brought these you know, beef ribs back to their families. Um, they, would, they would encourage them to enjoy those things. So the whole point of eating in the presence of God and to have a big, huge, giant barbecue is to send the portions back to the families and those people that don't have big, huge beef cattle to eat. So those portions that Elkanah is handing out, he's handing them out to people who don't own cattle, including his own wives, right? So he's handing those portions out and he gives a double portion to Hannah. It looks a lot like Boaz, Boaz in Ruth dropping a little bit of extra barley onto the ground so Ruth could pick it up and gather it. This is holy. This act of reading the word, repenting, getting right with God, eating in fellowship with other people that have done the same, and sharing those portions with each other, this is the heart of what God wants for his people. And, and, and yeah, it sounds really simple, like to just fellowship, read the word, pray together, rejoice together. My goodness, that, that's almost too simple, but it, it's actually the same thing in Acts 2.42 that the disciples do. It's no different. Um, so Elkanah's doing that, uh, and that's the context. We have Hannah and Peninnah at each other's throats. We have Elkanah trying to do his best, uh, even in a fallen country. Uh, and then we get to Hannah and her, her vow. It, where she is supposed to eat her portion and be happy, she cannot. And this is just one of those situations that I think people with a broken heart have. So verse 7, so it was year by year, so this is happening every year, that she would go up to the house of the Lord, that she provoked her, therefore she wept and did not eat. Hannah can't eat. Um, this, w whenever we see somebody not eating in the Bible, and, and this includes fasting, uh, fasting generally biblically happens when there is despair. 
when something has happened or is happening that is absolutely despairing to the person. We see the, the prophets fasting as Israel falls into sin. Um, the point of fasting is generally to not keep eating food when you're sick to your stomach about what's going on around you. And so Hannah is not fasting in a holy or religious way. She's just not eating. Uh, but what she's choosing to do during that time is go to the temple and pray. So while everybody else is eating their portions, she's there sitting politely and then she excuses herself and she, uh, she goes up and just cries before the tabernacle. Hannah takes it to the Lord in prayer. And that just that image of somebody doing the right thing with their despair. Uh, you know, there might be people in the room tonight that we just have a broken heart and you, um, you can barely even look at food and eat it because just there's so much going wrong in your life right now. And in, in that sense, the proper response is to just go to the Lord. Um, and, and, and if you can't enjoy the blessing of church or even the double blessing or double portion that we get at church when we study God's word, if you come into church on a Sunday and, and you find you can't even enjoy it, um, take it to the Lord in prayer. Like there is a point where when it's hard to even eat, that's the right response. When we're weak and heavy laden, we take it to the Lord in prayer. We, we take care or worry for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, we let our requests be made known to God. This is just what you do uh, biblically when, when you're upset. So Elkanah, her husband, says to her in verse 8, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So it's interesting that in the last question, the ten sons question, he knows that it's about childbirth. So the first questions then become kind of like he knows the answer to all of these questions because he knows it has something to do with how many kids she's had. And he knows it has something to do with Penina just being a brute, a, a bully. Um, so he attempts to console her. Uh, Elkanah attempts to show her love. But as any human, when there's a God-sized hole in our heart, there's no way for a human to fill it. And Elkanah just finds himself unable to fill that hole. So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. And now the priest Eli was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord, and she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. So another Bible story where our main character is starting out the story in, in bitterness of soul, like Naomi and uh, coming, back from, uh, uh, coming back into the Bethlehem area in the book of Ruth. And she comes back and says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because I'm bitter. My soul is just aching right now. Um, that idea that people can be in pain is, is um, clearly not only present in the Bible, it's present in our life too. And as believers, like to understand when we're in pain what to do, but to also understand when we know people that are in pain and we know people that are struggling, even though Elkanah screws it up here, he's still kind of showing his love for her, um, but he also isn't able to fix it either. So, um, so she goes to the Lord and, and, and she makes a vow in verse 11 and says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me. Uh, the word there is actually not remember. It's not like God forgets things, uh, but to remember there is to memorialize. It's more in the, in the present tense. Um, uh, Look on the affliction and, and see me. M make me part of what you know. Uh, and not forget your maidservant, but will give your ma ma maidservant a male child 
then I will give him to the Lord all the days of my life and no razor shall come on his head. So vows are extremely serious in, in the Bible. We're not supposed to make a false vow, right? We're supposed to give our word and to do it um, and follow through with it unto our life. So this is no obscure kind of thing. She's making very serious vow. The affliction she's talking about is coming from Penina. And it is the re because she hasn't been able to, to bear children. So what she's vowing here for a mother is pretty extreme. Uh, the Nazarite vow is indicated through the razor on the head. Back in number six, there's this idea that if you want to give something to the Lord beyond what God demands, so there's no demand to ever do a Nazarite vow. It's purely out of love. It's voluntary. And in this case, and in the case of Samson, it was a little different because these are people being dedicated to the Lord from the time they're born. Most Nazarites would be Levites between the ages of 30 and 50, and it wasn't a whole life commitment. It was, it was maybe to take a year and to not have any grape juice, to not drink or have the razor touch your head, and to not be anywhere around death or funerals or graveyards. So those three criteria, we're not going to consume the things of the flesh represented by the grapevines, we're not gonna. We're, we're gonna publicly set ourselves apart uh, as to the hairstyle, uh, and we're gonna dedicate and focus on life uh, as represented by the avoiding dead bodies. So, the vow of the Nazarite. Um, there is this uh, comparison to Samson that's not really fair. Judges thirteen. Samson has a Nazarite vow. He screws it up in every regard. <laughs> so this is an example of how not to do a Nazarite vow. But here in Samuel one, for Samuel one we're going to see somebody who actually keeps the Nazarite vow and it does it the right way. And it's an extraordinary vow uh, going over the top. But this idea that uh, she presents herself to God as a maidservant, uh, which is a lower than a normal female servant. It's a servant of servants. Uh, so she puts herself in the lowest position when she titles herself that way. Uh, and she calls God the Lord of hosts, the Lord of other uh, bodies of, of beings, angels and people. He's the Lord of it all. And she elevates him there. And this vow she makes to God is one that God seems to honor. Um, and she does it out of that spirit. Um, as it happened, verse 12, she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. So to continue praying, the translation there in the Hebrew is actually multiplied to pray. So she's praying this over time. And even though Jesus presents a Lord's prayer that's succinct and short, in Hannah, we don't see succinct and short. We see a, a prayer that she is continuing to pray over and over and over again. She's multiplying it. Uh, she's resolving herself to it. And she's just spending time with the Lord. Frankly, she's getting away from Penina. And to spend time with the Lord instead of Penina can be a positive thing. So she's pleading with God over time. And, that, and you could even read this where it says they did this year after year, right? And so this was just the regular practice of this family uh, in verse 7. It could be that she's coming up every year making this kind of promise and vow, and she's just praying for relief uh, from the torture that she's being put through. So we seek after the Lord. We see later in the Psalms, Psalm 27 and, and, and a number of other ones, David expresses this to seek after the Lord so that he can dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. And Hannah's inquiring of the Lord. She's asking of the Lord something. Samuel's name is going to be, you know, asked of the Lord. So when she's in pain, she comes with this request. And in her heart, she, she is asking this prayer. So we get an example of silent prayer. Uh, we've seen prayers where people use their mouths. We've seen prayers where 
there's whole crowds of people around. Uh, but here we get this sweet, silent prayer that is the kind Jesus encourages in Matthew chapter 6, like this prayer of the heart. So now, verse 13, now Hannah spoke in her heart. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, how long will you be drunk and put your wine away from you? So she's praying and her lips are moving a little bit and he thinks she's drunk. And like a good priest, Eli is saying, I don't want drunk people at the tabernacle. So get out of here. He doesn't do it right away, but the length of time she's praying is extraordinary, which says a little something about the kind of behavior Eli would wake up in the morning and expect to see at the temple. But Hannah's coming there and she's just sitting there and praying and she doesn't leave. And, and, and Eli tells her to knock it off because he thinks she's drunk. And answer, Hannah responds with a quiet word, just a soft word turns aside wrath. Hannah answers and says, no, my Lord, again, recognizing position. I'm a woman of sorrowful spirit, uh, which implies uh, hard labor. I've drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, implying those are two different things. And poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman. For out of the abundance of my complaint and grief, I've spoken till now. It, basically, Hannah's turning to Eli and saying, you know, I'm not drunk. I just want you to know I'm not drunk. Um, and I appreciate what you're doing. You're trying to keep that away from the tabernacle. But I'm here to pray. I'm here to pour out my soul before the Lord. If I have something to hold on to, I'm not giving up my whole life. But if I say I'm going to give up my whole life and give it to the Lord, my soul is part of that. So to give the Lord even our heartache and our pain is part of what we see here. And I just, this image, the word, the, she says, um, wicked woman here. Translated, that's woman of Belial. So uh, somebody totally against God. Don't think, because if you come up to the tabernacle and you're just loaded and drunk and you're really sullying that what's supposed to be there and the presence of God, uh, that would be pretty horrible to do that. So Eli's reproach is, is pretty cruel, right? He's assuming some really bad things about her. Um, but she's not. And, and when she says she's, she's a sorrowful spirit, she's, you know, like she's coming to the temple poor in spirit. And the, and the kingdom of heaven's literally going to be established under Ruth, right? So her brokenness here is the beginning of the story. Brokenness before God is where our life with God starts. And prior to being broken before God, and some people call this a prayer of salvation. Some people call this committing your life to the Lord. But to come to the point where you say, I'm done doing it on my own. I'm pouring out my soul to you. Lord, my soul is yours. And, and, and in this case, she's coming with a request. She's asking the Lord to give her this child. And even though she, the Lord would give her this child, she would instantly give that child back to the service of the kingdom. Because the answer to the prayer is that she has a child. Um, so even the joy of motherhood, she's willing to give up uh, in order to get this, this request answered. And Eli, of course, feels horrible because he just accused her of being drunk. And she it points out that she's not and speaks cogently. And Eli answers and said, go in peace. And the God of Israel, this is the big deal, the high priest of the temple just said, the God of Israel grant your petition for which you've asked him. Notice here that Eli doesn't know what the petition is. She tells him that later in the story, but right here he doesn't know that. So what he's giving his blessing for uh, is recorded, it's remembered, 
uh, God, when he is working through Eli, because this announcement is something that Ruth's going to walk away with. Look at verse 18. And she said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. Hannah hears this. Did I just say Ruth? Sorry about that. Hannah hears this and she understands what he said as coming straight from God as an answer to her prayer, right? So she hears it that way. She remembers it that way. This is, it sh this is being quoted when Eli answers her um, because it's remembered. And she, she hears that and she got what she wanted. And, you know, there's the rule when you get your yes, don't belabor it. Take your yes and, and go. And she does. Um, but again, we see this just idea of, uh, I don't know, the image of Hannah praying and getting this first instance in the Bible of just quiet, silent prayer tells us a couple things. One, when we pray, we still control our mouths, right? She can pray earnestly and she doesn't have to utter things when she does. So knowing that, um, that says something about our prayer. Our prayer, when we pray, we can pray out loud, we can pray quietly, but that has nothing to do with how earnest our prayer is and it has nothing to do with if God hears us or not. So controlling our tongue when we, when we pray has something to do with discernment, um, but it, in, in this case, she's... Um, to, she's totally quiet and she's totally fervent. And there's, and it, it is not something where we need to pray loudly on street corners. We don't need to make noises while we pray. We don't need to do any of that. Um, biblically speaking, here's an example of somebody that it's not making a sound and it's, it's clearly noted that way, but her earnestness is, is, and, and the answering and the idea that God heard her is also very clear here. So the pouring out of the soul is what's important, not what comes out of the mouth. So Naomi gets bitter in her hardship. Ruth decides to get to work in her hardship. And Hannah goes straight to God with her hardship. Uh, so we see these different ways that the women of God uh, respond to the hardships in their life. And when we can do this too. Uh, when we go to God and pour ourselves out to God, um, that's an important step. And, and God will answer one of three ways. He'll say yes, no, or hold on and wait. And if he says yes, we can praise the Lord. We got the answer to our prayer. And that's what Hannah just got. If, she, if he, God says no, then we can submit to it and say, okay, then I'll take this burden. That's what Jesus said to the Lord. You know, if you can take this cup from me, do it. And, and the God says no, and he says, then your will, not mine. Uh, and we can submit to that this is part of God's plan. If God says to wait, then we can wait too. Lord, I'm going to wait upon you and I'm going to just keep praying. Uh, I'm going to pray without ceasing about these things that concern me because anything that concerns us outside of the growth of God's kingdom is something we can hand to the Lord and put it at his altar and put it at his feet and walk away. And our face is no longer sad. The face is an expression of the heart. And it, this is so simple, but it makes so much sense. Psychologically, we can bury ourselves in going over and over and over the things that are bothering us. Or we can psychologically leave those at the feet of Jesus and we can walk away. I prayed it. The priest blessed it. I'm good. I prayed it, Jesus blessed it, I'm good, right? Old Testament, New Testament. That's faith. That's walking in faith. That when we say my troubles are God's business, that's actually what faith is, is trusting that God will handle it. And this is an idea that we adults, we have trouble getting our head around, that anything that bothered us, we can just hand to the Lord. But Jesus said, let the children come to me and don't try to stop them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Matthew 19. Matthew 5, he says, 
blessed are the poor of spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right. So Jesus was trying to help us to understand that the way in which we come to God and inherit the kingdom of heaven is to come to him like a child. It is to be poor in spirit and understand that God is God and we are not. And we put ourselves in that position because it's truth. We don't have to puff ourselves up with pride because pride isn't truth. We have nothing to be proud of. So Hannah worships together with the family, gets up while they're eating and drinking, goes to the tabernacle and when she comes back, she has a happy face on. This had to be, think of like the, the mental state of Peninnah, the bully, when Hannah goes away weeping and crying because she upset her so much with something really mean that she said. But then Hannah comes back and she's just happy again. That, that had to just be torturous to Peninnah. Also note that Peninnah just disappears after this. She's gone. We don't see another mention of Peninnah. So after she takes it to the Lord and puts it on the altar, it seems like Peninnah just evaporates, like it goes away, and the Lord takes care of it. So in the process of time, uh, this is going to change. Verse 19, they arose early in the morning, and they worshiped before the Lord, and returned and came to their house at Ramah. I, I think it's important to note in verse 19 that it, the way they phrase this, they came to their house at Ramah. They rose early. There's plural terms being used here that implies the entire family does it. When, later when we get to the end of Hannah's prayer in chapter 2, it just says Elkanah went back to Ramah. Um, so the writer knows how to say they all went back, and the writer also says it very differently at the end of prayer of Hannah, um, which some would read is that Hannah actually still kind of stuck around to take care of Samuel, but we'll get to that later. Verse 19 uh, the second half, and Elkanah knew his Hannah, his wife, meaning they, they knew each other in a marital way, and the Lord memorialized her. Again, the word there is, is, is not that the Lord had forgotten something and then remembered her. Uh, the Lord memorialized her. The Lord took her prayer and made her something the rest of us are going to look at for all of history. She made it into the Bible. The Lord memorialized her. So he remembered her prayer in the sense that he is going to act and make this happen. Hannah, who was barren, just bore a child. So it came to pass, verse 20, in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and she called his name Samuel saying, because I have asked for him from the Lord. Uh, so Samuel in the Hebrew means heard of God or asked of God. And in, in other words, when people met Samuel, I'd say, what's your name? And, and Samuel would kind of say, God did this. That's my name. Saal plus El or, or I've asked plus God is, uh, is, the, is the literal translation of that. So she names him Samuel, um, and in the process of time, that takes nine months, so time passes. And verse 1 then starts with the word now, because time has passed. Verse 21, now the man Elkanah in all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. So he's made a vow to, to honor the Lord, and he's going to keep it. Uh, and, and this is what the family does. And, but Hannah did not go up. So again, this is why I said it was important when it says they went up versus they didn't go up. We see that back here in 21 and 22 when they clearly tell us who's going up and who's not going up. Now the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer the Lord the yearly sacrifice in his vow. But Hannah did not go up for she said to her husband, not until the child is weaned, then I'll take him that he might be up here before the Lord and remain there forever. If she takes up a, a one-month-old baby, he, the, the priests aren't going to say leave him here because then she's putting a burden on the priesthood. So this isn't breaking her vow 
the weaning of the child is to, to where he can he can get up and eat normal food and sit at the table with everybody else and follow the priests around and 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 not have to rely on his mother for his sustenance so there is a an idea here in Jewish culture that the weaning process was a period of time after physical birth when the, the mother and the child were still connected. So this isn't a breaking of the vow. It doesn't, isn't written that way. Likewise, the nine months before physical birth are a period of time where the Bible presents that that child actually exists. So being in the womb for nine months, uh, God weaves them together at conception. Uh, God answers the prayer here at conception. Uh, it came to pass that Hannah conceived and bore a son. Uh, those things are tied together. The conception is where the prayer is answered. So nine months where the child's in the mother, and then there's a season of time, usually two to three years, where the child is still dependent on the mother and not independent yet. Uh, and that process, that nine months plus the two plus years, that's motherhood. That's, the wean that's that period of time in Hebrew culture uh, where they were together and connected. So... Uh, Elkanah says, uh, so Elkanah, her husband says to her, do what seems best to you and wait until you've weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. Don't break your vow. Because at this time, apparently, uh, Hannah has told Elkanah everything that's there. Only let the Lord establish his word. If he said that he's going to do this, then do it. And if you vowed you're going to do it, then do it. Then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she weaned him. <clears throat> Verses 21 through 23 are added in there, and they don't seem to be relevant to the story other than we're getting this incredible detail. And we're, we're, we're getting more detail than we did in other stories previous about what actually happened. Um, but it's also important here because Elkanah, her husband, and I, I, I think sometimes God puts things in the Word that don't necessarily help the story move forward, but they do answer questions for the next 5,000 years. Like, there is strong indication here that this connection between the mother and child is precious, that it's something that the Lord understands, that there is, there is a element of decision-making and choice, verse 23, do what seems best to you, that is not under the law. In other words, God expects us to use our brains and to use common sense. So when we say things like, you know, God asks us to meet once a week and study his word, so we do, and we remain faithful to it. There might be things in life where you can't make it on a Sunday, and there are people that will do foolish things, like drive through a blizzard to get to a service on Sunday because they vowed to be at the service on Sunday, yet it makes no sense because it puts them in physical danger to do it, right? This is the difference between doing things and keeping in a vow out of love and doing things and keeping a vow out of some religious obligation that has nothing to do with what God expects of us, right? The difference between legalism and being permissive. And we land somewhere on the narrow path between those things, right? We do things because we love the Lord. And if we love the Lord, we don't put a child in danger by taking him on a trip when he's one month old, right? So we, Elkanah trusts his wife. That's another element that's buried in these verses. Like he gives her authority over the child raising process. So when people read the Old Testament and, and, and say it, it disrespects women, they're clearly not reading what I'm reading. But this is a husband saying, giving his wife and, and saying, do what seems best to you. I trust you. And it, a lot like a healthy marriage, right? Where both people have thoughts and opinions and she gives hers. And he says, okay, good thing. Only let's keep the Lord at the middle. 
And, and, and at some level, that's his husbandly authority in the marriage is to just remind her that we serve the Lord. He submits to God and she submits to God. So she gets, he gets this nice little reminder. We get a glimpse of the kind of man Elkanah was. Samuel had some good parents. Um, so what seems best to you in the, in the idea of how long do I wean a child uh, is not the same thing as when we see in Judges, do what's right in your own eyes. Do what's right in your own eyes has to do with not following God's law. It's in the context of God's law and God's will. So when we're living in the law, in love of our Lord, we have great freedom within the law because there's lots of things in life that the law doesn't tell us what to do. So God can and he does give us direction in those things. But when it comes to like things that aren't in the law, how, how long should I wean? Well, you do what you think is right. Do what seems best. Do what makes sense. And use the mind that God gave you when he does it. So I think these passages are here for good reason. They help answer a lot of those kinds of debates that we have in the church because we can use these passages. And God knew that. His word's perfect. And he put what we needed in here. So it's, it's here for the health and strength of the child Samuel. That's going to take precedent. Uh, it's going to be a sensible decision that the family makes. And it gets added to the story. But then we, we keep moving on in verse 24. We get another now which means more time has passed. Probably that two to three years of weaning time has passed. So Samuel's a little two-year-old toddler uh, running around causing trouble. Um, or maybe he's not causing trouble. The Bible doesn't say he causes trouble, but I think a two-year-old's and I, I think terrible twos. And they, they get into things because they're curious. Verse 24, now when she had weaned him, he's on his own, he's eating solid foods. She took him up with her, three bowls, one ephath of flour and a skin of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, and the child was young. Okay. She didn't just go up and drop a two-year-old off at the doorstep of the temple. That's not what's happening here. She's giving the child, and she brings with considerable wealth to support this child. So this is keeping her vow of giving the child, but she's giving more too. Because these donations, the three bulls, the one ephah, the flower, skin of wine, brought to him to the house of the Lord, that's not all going to be a burnt sacrifice. Verse 25 says they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. So the a bull would be the burnt sacrifice. You put it on the altar, you burn it up to smoke. It is wholly dedicated to the Lord. That sacrifice is a cleansing sacrifice. We do burnt offerings to clean us of our sin. Before we have any connection or fellowship with God, there's a burnt offering that happens first. And this is back in Leviticus. The other two entire bulls, like these are two bulls worth of meat. Uh, that's plenty of barbecue to bring back. Basically, she's bringing the supplies for a big, huge family barbecue. Meat, the flour is for bread, and the wine, the skin of wine is for drinking. And we saw earlier that she hadn't drank any wine or intoxicating drink. So when sometimes in the Old Testament, even the New Testament, when we see wine, sometimes that just means grape juice. Right? That's product of the vine. So in this case, because we had that earlier verse within the same book, uh, this is probably non-alcoholic wine or what we would call grape juice. So she's bringing everything you need for a massive feast, and they're going to celebrate together because this is a good thing. Most Levites don't start their service till they're, they're of age, they're grown. But Samuel, this little tyke, he's going to get put to work early on. What kind of work does a two-year-old do or a three-year-old? Well, you know what? They go to school. They start hearing the word. They just grow up in the presence of, of worship and sacrifice and praise. By age three or four, he can be scooping the ashes out of the altar when it's cooled off after sacrifices. He can be sweeping things up by age four and five. 
he would likely be studying with Eli and doing manual labor his entire childhood, right? And so she's bringing him up and she brings the child to Eli, who's then going to kind of take over the education of this child. Why does she bring him to Eli and not the two sons? Uh, Eli's probably past his age of service, which is why they mentioned the two sons earlier in the chapter, because those two sons would be overseeing the affairs of the tabernacle. Uh, but she brings him to Eli because that's the person that Lord, the Lord brought into her life and spoke through earlier in the story. So in verse 26, and she says, Oh my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I'm the woman who stood by you here praying in the Lord. Remember me from a couple years ago? I'm that one you thought was drunk. And Eli's like, oh yeah, I remember you. Verse 27, for this child I prayed, because she hadn't told him earlier, but now she's telling him, I prayed for a kid, and this is the kid. The Lord has granted me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore, I've lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worship the Lord there. And the worship of the Lord then is, they're going to have that feast. They're going to celebrate. What a cool thing. The God answered my prayer. One of the things in the body that's exciting is when we ask the Lord for things and he answers our prayers, which is why before we do our Bible teaching, we say, what's the Lord doing in your life? And some nights we got stories, some nights we don't. But how amazing when God answers those prayer. So we're back to that idea of worship again. Worship is giving the bulls, the flower, the that stuff costs money. And when she's giving of her resources to the celebration of God, that's worship. So verse 3, verse 19, verse 28, Samuel himself is an act of worship. Giving her son to the tabernacle is worship. Uh, so I, I think it's really important because we think of worship and the worship service at church, and we're always thinking of songs, but that's just not biblical. Abraham worshiped when he volunteered Isaac in Genesis 24. It was called worship. And Abe said, I am at your service. So that's ministry. Uh, I'm going to do what the Lord tells me to do. I'm going to trust in the Lord. Um, in verse 15, she's quiet in her sorrow. But here, the worshiping the Lord strongly implies that it's very public and social. So when she's rejoicing, it's out loud. When she's in sorrow, it's just her moving lips before the Lord. Grant, God's given her a gift, and she's just enjoying the fact that it's there and what it is. Verse 27, for this child I prayed, and Eli gets to find that out. The phrase lent him to the Lord is an interesting translation. Whenever you see odd turns of phrase in the Old Testament, New Testament, that's a good indication as a Bible student to go look the word up because it meant that the translators didn't quite know how to phrase this. Like it's an odd word in the Hebrew, sha'al, uh, means to ask or inquire. So a literal translation is, therefore, verse 28, therefore I have asked, inquired him to the Lord. I've asked him to the Lord. So that's an interesting thing because the request was, the vow was, if you give me a male child, I'll put him in service of the tabernacle. So I've asked him, my request was to give him to the tabernacle. I wanted the child in order to do this. So that's a tough thing to translate. So we won't beat the translators up too much, but the way they decided to put that is I've lent him to the Lord. So he's mine, for, I'm, he's on loan from God, um, but I'm going to... I'm going to just give him back to the Lord. Frankly, when you look at the new covenant, when Jesus invites everybody to, into the holy priesthood, we're all asked to the Lord. We're all on loan. From, so God gives us our life. If, if you're breathing right now, God put that breath in your lungs. You didn't put it there. You didn't wake up in the morning and decide to breathe. God gave you breath and life. 
in that sense, our life is on loan from God for the period of time he wants us here on earth. And for us to say, you know what, God, I'm going to just loan this back to you. Like, I'm going to give this back to you. That's the commitment that's asked for from Jesus. Like, give your life to the Lord God Almighty. So if Samuel is a gift and our entire life is a gift, it's logical that we, we say to the Lord, we understand our lives are a gift and we want to give either portions back to you, worship, or we want to serve your kingdom and work in your church and work in the ministry and do ministry. Um, but we know that it's not ours to claim even though you let us have that to ourselves. You only ask for, the Lord only asks for one day a week, Sabbath. But think of how many people just skip Sabbath. We, as a country, and again, I'm, I'm old manning it a little bit here, but, but when I was a kid, the town shut down on Sunday. You couldn't do business on Sunday because no businesses were open. But today we, we get Amazon deliveries on a Sunday. Um, that idea that our lives are a gift from God and God only asks for a very small portion back, it should be nothing for us to give him that portion. Yet we skip it all the time. John 3.27, a man can receive nothing except it be given from heaven our whole life. 1 Timothy 6, 7, for we brought nothing into this world and it's certain that we carry nothing out. You can't take it with you. Your resources, your ephods of flour, your bowls, your wine, none of that stuff you can take with you. So why stockpile it? Why store up things on this earth that mean nothing and they rust and they fade away? But instead we store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Well, that's what's going on here. And they worship the Lord in, in verse 28. And then we get a record of what the worship was. It gets written down. Here's why this whole prayer, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1, Hannah prayed and said. <clears throat> the reason this is recorded is because God just answered a prayer at the steps of the tabernacle and Eli was there to confirm it and Elkanah is there to confirm it. Two witnesses. The Lord spoke through Eli and that prayer was answered. So this is a big moment. God just spoke to his people, even on a small scale. God just interacted in history. So when Hannah brings this prayer and this, this heart of rejoicing, that's going to be something that she's offering along with the bull and the ephod, the flower, and Samuel himself. She's offering this prayer that comes with. And so we get this example of out loud prayer from Hannah too. And, it, and I'm just going to read it. Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoiced in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Um, it's interesting how Han Hannah prays, right? It's, in, when, it's clearly in a psalm format. So she might have even sang this as a song. Uh, it's in a poetic format. We know that because verse 2 says the same thing three times. And, and in the Hebrew, that's, uh, we should know by now as we've studied the Old Testament uh, that three is a number of completion. Uh, it's not necessarily divine completion, but she's talking about a divine topic. Uh, so when she says, no one is holy, none beside you, no rock like our God, she's saying God is set apart and he is um, uncomparable to anything else. Um, this idea that we just lift up the Lord when we feel that joy. Uh, Luke 1, 46, my soul magnifies the Lord. The same soul that was poured out to the Lord is now a heart that rejoices in the Lord. Because when the Lord moves in your life, 
the proper response is worship. I can just see what happened. My horn is exalted. A horn is a symbol of, of strength and power. It gets used to move herds of cattle. Uh, horns get used to move armies on the battlefield. It is what announces a public announcement. Uh, so those, when a horn gets blown, something is being enacted or moved. Um, and, and for her part, whatever power Hannah has, it's exalted in the Lord. The only degree to which she has any voice at all is what the Lord has. And she's practiced this, right? When she was bitter of heart, she was silent. But when, she is, when the Lord has exalted, now she's speaking in the Lord, then she's loud about it, right? I smile at my enemies. She's probably thinking of Peninnah here, but she doesn't even name Peninnah, right? Um, that that the, uh, the smiling at her enemies, because not only is she having a child, but it, it might be that something happened to Peninnah, right? That, that the Lord didn't only bless Hannah, but something happened that doesn't get mentioned to Peninnah. And I'll show you where I think I see that later in the prayer. Um, <clears throat> A key idea here is that she says, this is interesting, I smile at my enemies because, and look at this phrase, I rejoice in your salvation, God's salvation. The word there is Yeshua. Uh, it's, it's not used as a proper name, but it's clearly being used in reference to God himself. And so she rejoices in your Yeshua. Um, so Again, so this prayer is wonderful because it's clearly Hannah just praying for herself. But when you read it in the Hebrew, it's also a strong prophetic prayer. And I don't know that Hannah even knew that when she wrote the song because she's probably thinking of Peninnah. But the Lord, she's also speaking in the Lord. My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horns exalted in the Lord because I rejoice in your salvation in the third time around. So there's a, a trio of things in verse 1, a trio of things in verse 2. Um, the Lord then is Yeshua in the third one. Um, <clears throat> Yeshua then in verse 1, at the end of verse 2, the, the second trilogy there, is that there is no rock like our God. God then, being singular, is being compared to a rock. Now, being set apart is what Hannah's trying to say here. It's a form of Hebrew rhyming to say the same thing three times. Um, but it is also, it odds are, a total revelation because she just linked salvation to a rock, the rock of Christ, where Jesus says, I'm the, for, the cornerstone. And Jesus even calls himself a foundation or a rock, Matthew 7, 24. It's great that Sunday morning we're, we're teaching this. Everyone who hears these words of mine, Jesus, and does them is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Hannah's the first one to link Yeshua to rock. Jesus links Yeshua to rock in the same kind of way. This is clearly God speaking through Hannah's prayer. I don't think Hannah would call herself a prophetess, but this is clearly prophetic in that it reveals something about God's plan and the way in which God's going to talk about that plan to his people. And we see a lot of firsts in this prayer. Um, verse 3, talk no more so very proudly. So she's probably thinking of Peninnah here. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Again, the idea from verse 2 is that he's singular. So in verse 3, he's the God of knowledge. 
Uh, she uniquely uses the singular form of God there, El, and she does not use the Elohim, which is normally uh, the way in which God is used when talking about Jehovah. Uh, it's better that proud people then uh, don't talk. <laughs> don't let arrogance come from your mouth. Uh, and Hannah ascribes God the role of judge, which he, he is our judge. Um, and not all actions are good or, or bad by our own definition. They're weighed according to how God sees our actions. Again, we're in Matthew 6 right now where Jesus talks about giving, praying, and fasting. At face value, praying, giving, and fasting are all good things. But if they're done the wrong way, they're evil things. They can be corrupted. It's not the action that in inherently has good or bad in it. It's not our works that matter. It's by him actions are weighed. What is he weighing it on? He's weighing it on our hearts. And that's where at verse 1, my heart rejoices in the Lord. You can see what's going on inside my heart. So singularly, God weighs our actions through the heart. This is where we fear the Lord because we fear that he's going to know what's really in our heart. And as fallen sinners, we have to come before the Lord knowing he sees everything. We're laid bare because, of, of, of because God sees and knows our heart, Matthew 7, 21. Proverbs 9, 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. What Hannah is showing here is absolute revealed knowledge of the Holy One during the period of Judges. God is showing himself to the people. And this is public. There's two bowls worth of, of, of sacrifice being eaten here. This is not just Hannah and Elkanah eating two bowls worth of meat. It's the whole Levitical priesthood, right? They're all celebrating this work of God together, this child that shouldn't be there, that God helped make be, um, this young infant that's going to be put in the servants of the Lord. So I don't think Hannah knew what she was saying here, but there is clearly an intelligence and an understanding of the nature of God in her prayer. She is a devout woman at the least. She's a devout woman that's been coming to the temple her whole life because she knows who God is. She's been listening when they read the word. Verse 4, the bows of the mighty men are broken. Those tools that we make, that we think give us power on this earth, they don't amount to anything. And the, the bow and arrow was militarily the strongest weapon of the ancient world. And those who stumbled are girded with strength. And those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. And the hungry have ceased to hunger. And even the barren has borne seven. Wow, where did that come from, Hannah? And she, and she who has many children has become feeble. So I talked about the bows. Just what we think is strength isn't strength, right? And when we think we're stumbling, we're girded with strength. Those who are weak are made strong. Whoever exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. Like, that's what Jesus teaches, right? She's teaching the same things Jesus did. Those who were full have hired themselves. Now they're begging for bread. They're willing to work for food. But the hungry have ceased to hunger. This is God's grace. Humble hearts are able to collect bread because they're looking for it. We don't really gather the word of God until we need the word of God. You know, it would be an odd thing to pray, but if you're walking through life and everything's just dandy, maybe you should pray for some trials. Ask for some tests and hardships to see that you, your faith in the Lord can endure even those tests. 
Now, don't leave here just being like, oh, Sean said we should all pray for trials. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that it is in the hunger that we have for the Lord that enables us to look for the bread from the Lord. Even the barren has borne seven in verse five. Seven, remember, is every, the Hebrew numbers don't always just mean the, the number. Each of the Hebrew numbers has another meaning. Like when I say red, that can mean a color or can mean actually like that I, I read a book, right? It has two different meanings. Same thing with Hebrew numbers, right? It's gem gem gematria. The number seven means divine completion or perfection in God's, with the, the connotation of God's involvement. It's a root, it's the same root word that's used for making a vow, right? It's a perfect, complete, finished thing, seven, a perfection. Uh, later, like I don't, I, we definitely see in this prayer that there are things that are clearly related to Hannah, but we also see these other things that are, that really could be read a different way by a Bible scholar or an Old Testament scholar or a scribe in the time of Jesus might go back and read this because when you read the phrase, even the barren has born seven, that in the Hebrew could be read, even the barren has born perfection, divine perfection. This, if you're reading this post Jesus, this is a reference to a virgin birth. This is a reference to a woman who's never had a child suddenly having a child. And Hannah's clearly talking about herself, but there's a mirror or a figure here that helps us see God's plan or, or what you would call a revelation. And throughout the Bible, there are many revelations that are progressively clearer and clearer. So when we get to Isaiah and we get to Elijah and we get to Micah, uh, we get to the prophets, the images get a virgin shall make the Messiah. Like it gets really clear by the time we get to the end of the Old Testament. But right here at the beginning, it's not quite that clear. You'd have to read it that way. Um, but at the same token, it's written that way too. And, and after Jesus, you come back and say, God was showing us even back during the judges what his plan was, that even the barren will bear divine perfection, right? So later after Jesus, this isn't figurative anymore. This is actually a perfectly completed uh, perfection of a vow, so to speak. And many children has become feeble. Uh, so it may be that Peninnah, this is speaking about Peninnah, she who has many children, singular, this is talking about a person who has many children has become uh, feeble. Uh, so it might be that Penina lost her mind or she had a stroke or we don't know, it doesn't say, uh, but there's some indication here that something happened to Penina. Um, so, uh, and she goes on with her prayer. Uh, again, putting the focus on the Lord. The Lord kills and makes alive. He gives us our breath. He brings down to the grave and brings things up. The Lord makes the poor rich. He brings the low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set him among the princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are Lord's and he has set the world upon them and he will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. Wow, this is our God, folks. Hannah gets it. When she talks about the Lord God Almighty, she's talking about the same God that I talk to every morning. Like, I feel so much resonance with Hannah here, where Naomi was a proud woman going her own way, and Ruth was a humble and loyal servant. If you say it, I'll do it. Where you go, I'll go. Your God is my God. She's just this humble servant. You got Hannah that just has 
I mean, you get the idea that where Naomi was used to being the popular person and Ruth is used to being the servant, Hannah is used to being brutalized by Peninnah the bulk of her life. She's the shy girl, but she knows my God. And in that, like, I have, there's this resonance with Hannah that you realize, man, we're talking about the same God in 2021 as we were talking about uh, during the time of Judges. This is how God does things. Moreover, this is a perfect description of God's plan in Jesus Christ. It, it literally, there's, when it says the Lord kills and makes alive, the, the subject of the sentence is the Lord. So when it says he brings down to the grave and brings up, there's no other proper noun here. It's talking about God going down to the grave. He brings down. There's no human that's added to the sentence. It's literally he is the only nominative noun in the sentence. And it's all in the present infinitive. So not only has he done it for Hannah, he always does it for everyone. The Lord kills and makes alive. Um, the idea of that just being past, present, future. This is what God does. He's done it for Hannah. He does it for us. Listen to Revelation 1.8. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. That's Jesus talking there. Make no doubt about it. Jesus brings down to the grave, he was dead, and brings himself up from the grave. The God holds the power over life and death. He demonstrates it through miracles. Lifts the beggar. Boy, <laughs> Hannah, years of shame, coming to the Lord, just begging the Lord every year. She was talking about herself. But think about what this is in a larger context, because again, it's in the present infinitive. He raises from the poor. She's not just talking about himself. She's talking about a general concept that this is who God is. He takes the poor, Jesus says the poor of spirit, and the dust from the dust and lifts the pegger from the ash heap. He makes graves into gardens, right? This is a, think of the poetry here, right? He takes those that are in the worst spots in life and he sets them among the princes and makes them inherit the throne of glory. This is the first time in the Bible we get these images, right? And they get used, right? These images, this idea of inheriting a throne of glory, this is what Jesus says. Jesus says in Matthew 19, 28, Assuredly, I say to you that the, in the regeneration, in this life from death thing, when the Son of Man, Messiah, sits on his throne of glory, you who have followed me will also sit on the 12 thrones, judging the tribes of Israel. Paul uses this, Ephesians 2, 6, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God's going to put people on thrones. And he's not picking from the people that are on the thrones of this world, right? He's going to take the lowly, the, the obscure, the, those, that group of people, often white pairs, studying the word faithfully every week. He's going to take you and he's going to make you princes because you're the ones that had the sound judgment to study the word when the rest of the world said, why are you even bothering with that? You had the wisdom then. So when it becomes clear in Christ Jesus, where we should have been spending our time, Jesus is going to put in authority the people who made the right decision when it wasn't easy. This life is a testing ground to do what's right despite everything else. Study his word. 
fellowship with the saints, pray without ceasing, eat together. Yes, that's on the list too. We should be eating the fat, right? That idea that we take the word in and we consume it, it's wonderful. That's what it's all about. Why? Because the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. Everything here is something God set here so that he can decide who to lift from the ashes and who not to. So some people jump on this verse and it's kind of one of those aha, aha verses. There are no pillars for the earth. The earth isn't held up on pillars. This is poor, ignorant, ancient world people thinking the earth is flat. No, that's not the case. So far, Hannah has, has compared God to a rock that is separated. That's what you call figurative language. God's not actually a rock. She says the, the bows are broken. Again, that's not literally archery bows. That's all of the things that people make that give them power are snapped. That's what you call figurative language. Uh, she says the barren is, is made divine perfection. Again, figurative language. This whole poem, this whole song, this whole prayer of Hannah is loaded with new powerful images that help explain and express what God is. God gives life, verse 6. God gives wealth, verse 7. God gives position, verse 8. God gives everything. He's in control of everything. And to capture that idea, she again gives us figurative language. This earth is God's. And he's put the world upon his pillars. It all rests on God. There is still a God particle that physicists are looking for. There is still a question on why atoms even stay together. But we know when they fall apart, we get nuclear explosions. Right? We know there's a power to this universe and a sustaining power to this universe that's not fully understood. The pillars of the earth are God's. It's actually, if you take it as figurative language, it's actually still something we haven't quite figured out scientifically. And he has set the world upon these pillars. He has put everything we see in existence upon his plan. That's the Judeo-Christian perspective even as we go about doing rigorous science. We're simply trying to understand the pillars, right? So this idea that she sets up, the imagery she sets up, is essentially saying God's in control. I don't have a problem with that scientifically. God is in control. And it says he'll guard the feet of his saints. What a beautiful image. I want my feet guarded. If every, Steph goes to bed earlier than I do at night, so the room, we shut the lights off for her. So whenever I have to get up to go get ready for bed, I have to walk an, a, around this path to get to the bedroom. If anything gets left on the floor, I knock my toe on it, which is like once a week, I knock my toe on something. Man, to think that as we walk, he guards the feet of his saints. Again, it's figurative language, right? I, I, literally, I'd like him to protect me from stubbing my toe ever again. But again, this is figurative language. It's a poem. It's a psalm. Uh, it, it, it is this idea that we can walk confidently through life, not just through the bedroom, that God keeps his people safe. These are eternal truths that she's sharing here. Um, note that we shift from the present. He has set the world upon them. Uh, that's a... a, a uh, an infinitive, that's an ongoing thing. But in verse 9, it says, he will guard the feet of his saints. The, in the Hebrew, that shifts to the future tense. So she's saying this is something that will happen. Um, this is interesting, right? Because she has in this prayer, as she's uttering it, 
She has moved from the truths of God, the character of God, directly into what God is going to be doing. She, I think, even inadvertently talks about a barren woman bearing divine perfection. And then this idea that the Lord himself will be brought down to the grave and then brought up, it seems like she's giving the history of the world in one song, right? And then he raises up his church from the ashes, and, and these are the people that are going to inherit things. And then as they go through their life, he's going to guard their feet, and the wicked shall be silent in darkness, moving into the future tense of the future age. So pride is going to block the appeals of God from people. They shall be silent. There's going to be nothing to say in that total darkness. There's a blindness to it. But we also get this image, and David, likely hearing this prayer, because this gets written down, Samuel is, this is Samuel's story. David knew Samuel. Samuel probably told this prayer. So when, when, the, when Samuel is even a child going down to the tabernacle in Shiloh, this prayer would have likely been taught to people, you know, and the story of Hannah would have been shared as Samuel grew and got older. Um, so images from this prayer, like you're going to watch after my feet, in Psalm 119, David writes, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. He uses the same imagery. But the first time we saw that, you can't give David total credit for that. He should have cited the prayer of Hannah because it's where that idea kind of first was expressed. Hannah is a walking example for generations. And this prayer becomes a, a set of images that get used throughout the Psalms, throughout the prophecies. It gets built on this. So Hannah contributes a significant set of images to the revelation of God. Um, and what she did um, and, and the way in which Samuel was born was what made this come to the temple and get written down. So God's intervention in history is part of what happened here. Um, she stays in the future tense. For by strength, no man shall be prevail. We don't get there on our own strength. Uh, Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous, no, not one. We don't get there on our own. Verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. That means that right now they're not broken. The powerful enemies of God reign and rule and sit where they are in power over the world for a season, but not forever. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven, he will thunder against them. Jesus didn't come in thunder. Uh, he came to invite uh, he did not come to judge. He came to let people know he would come back to judge. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, future tense, and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So she talked about her horn at the beginning of the prayer. She talks about God's horn at the end. She has very little power that gets put in God's service. He has power over the whole world. This is pretty much a Cliff Notes version of Revelation 6, chapter, chapter 6 through chapter 20. This is a, a summary of all of what's going to happen in the end. Not only does God have power, in the end, God's going to use it. He shall do these things. So who are we in front of this kind of God? When you really hear the prayer of Hannah, don't just hear this or come to a teaching. Let it sink into your heart. We're in His hands. We're measured by his measuring tape. He's our judge. If that's the case, how dare we defiantly and proudly come up against him? Whatever strength we think we have, whatever, whatever quote-unquote freedoms we think we're exercising, 
they won't prevail. They don't win. We become adversaries of the Lord and we'll be broken in pieces when we decide to do it our own way. When we decide to leave what God's word is and walk away from it, we're in dangerous territory. So far in Hannah's prayer, verse 1, God's our Savior. Verse 2, God is holy. Verse 3, God is knowledge. Verse 6, God gives life and God gives, God's in control of life and death. Verse 7, God gives our material status. He decides who rules and who's in power. Verse 8, God is our judge in verse 10. In verse 10, God will have an empowered king and God will exalt his Mashiach. Oh, this is crazy how she does this. This is one of the first times we see this in the Bible. Lord's going to judge the earth, but this last phrase here, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. In the Hebrew, this is, a, this is a, 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 an interesting turn of phrase. It's all one sentence, right? This, this whole thing of, of verse 10, all one sentence in the Hebrew. Adversaries, Jehovah broken, from heaven sound, all Jehovah judge, ends of earth, give strength to king, which in the Hebrew is melech, exalt horn, which is power anointed. Anointed in the Hebrew is Messiah, Messiah. In the Greek, that word's translated Christ. In the English, we translate that word anointed. It's the same word, and it's in the future tense. Like, this is what she just did there with these sentences. Like, Eli had to raise an eyebrow, like, wait, what did you just say? But it's telling us what the Lord's going to do. And what gives Hannah authority is that the Lord just answered her prayer through Samuel. His miracle is what justifies the words. This is the first use in the Bible of the word anointed as a title, not an adjective. There are people that get anointed, anointed pre previous to this, but the anointed is never used as a title until this prayer, until this moment when Elkanah and Eli hear her say this, they're like, wait, what, what, did, what is she talking about? From here forward, Messiah is regularly referred to as the anointed or, or, or his anointed. Um, so when it says he, the he there is Jehovah, the Lord, from verse 10, it, it, the Lord is going to give strength to, and then it's his king. So what's interesting here is, is the his is not in there. He's going to give strength to his king is, is give strength to king. There is nothing wrong about reading that Hebrew as God himself being the king. It is his strength for his kingship. And, and again, the Hebrew is interesting in that you can read it in the present tense or the future tense. There are different ways to read it, which is why the rabbis wrote volumes debating these passages. But post-Jesus, we can see this is, is totally accurate for Jesus too. Uh, Luke 4.14, 4, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went throughout all the surrounding reason, region. So the Spirit, God, empowers Jesus, God. He empowers himself with different manifestations where we apply words to them, but it's the same God that we're talking about here. God gives strength to his Godship. And the horn, his power, is, is his exalted, his exalted, so or his anointed, his Messiah. And he will exalt, 
He will give strength to king, exalt power anointed, is the Hebrew for this. Hannah shows us God's plan, but likely when they wrote this down, likely when Hannah said it, she had no idea how appropriate, how perfectly fitting this is to the word. So God's plan is revealed again. It's revealed with another layer. The, the idea that God's going to conquer sin and death is here from Genesis. Um, but this idea that his anointed and will come in power, that's an idea that gets carried through the rest of the Bible. Like from here forward, this is a new prophecy about the one, about the Messiah, about, now we're going to start using the phrase, the anointed, the one God puts his power on. This makes it really relevant when we see the baptism of Jesus with John the Baptist, that there is an anointing that happens there that doesn't come from John the Baptist. It comes from God himself. So this is in front of the temple. This is made after a miracle with Samuel. And they write it down. And they save this. They start teaching it to their children, which is why it's likely David would have heard this prayer. Zechariah uses the image of a horn of salvation uh, in, in Luke chapter 1, verse 68. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, 11 miles away in Bethlehem. And he has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets who have begun since the world began. Zechariah knew this prayer because he's using a phrase from this prayer. Like as a, as a Levite, they would know these things. It became general understanding for the devout that the anointed would come from not only the house of David, but it would be the horn of our salvation. The power of salvation comes through Jesus. Mary uses this image in Luke 1, 46 through 55, same chapter. Uh, Hebrews would have known this. The way in which Mary mirrors her prayer after Hannah's prayer is striking. So we don't have time to go through it now, but a great Bible study is to look at Mary's prayer in Luke and compare it to Hannah's prayer and see all the parallels. It's like Mary was paraphrasing Hannah's prayer and saying, this applies to me too. What just happened here fulfills Hannah's prayer, right? So we're beginning with Hannah, and we get this new start, this new era at the beginning of Samuel. Something new is now underway. Kings get anointed. As we start the era of kings, it starts with Hannah's prayer. This is how God will anoint a king, and this is the beginning of that anointing. And that anointing of a king is the power that will be salvation for us. This is strength to a king that exalts the power of the anointed Messiah. That's what she said. So here we are at the beginning of it all. Peter explains it in Acts chapter 10. When he's talking about salvation, he preaches... This is how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. Jesus wasn't just some teacher. He wasn't some sage or guru that people ran to the hills for. He, ex he exhibited the power of God because he was anointed by God. That's the claim of Christianity. So... We get to the end, really quick wrap up on this. And I think it's, it's an important wrap up for me. I never, I didn't, I struggle with the idea that you'd take a two-year-old and leave him with a bunch of Levites. Um, and, and I see an indication here that gives me some peace 
and you may not read it this way, that's fine, we can disagree on it. It's not a huge theological point. But verse 11 here says, and we'll wrap up with verse 11. Uh, we'll pick up next week in the next part. Then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, but, ministered, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. We've seen previous in this chapter that the writer knows how to say Elkanah and his family went up to Shiloh, and they, it knows how to say Elkanah and Hannah went back to Ramah. So when we see it spoken differently in verse 11, I think there's a strong inc inclination that Hannah stuck around with Samuel for a while. And they're only five miles away between Ramah and Shiloh. So Hannah clearly would have gone back and forth and checked in on Samuel. She wouldn't have just dropped a two-year-old off at their doorstep and then not left care for him. There's also a group of uh, women that prayed at the tabernacle. We know this from the time of Moses. So there was a, uh, this two-year-old would have had a group of people that would have watched after him. And there would have been the women praying before the tabernacle without ceasing day and night. Those women would have probably enjoyed having a little two-year-old running around. And they would have taken him in and watched after him and made sure he got food. But Hannah would have been back and forth all the time. We know she eventually got back to Ramah, even though it doesn't say that she did in verse 11. But we know she got back because she has six more kids. Right, which is where the number seven in her prayer is odd because grand total at this point she has one kid. She will have six kids, which is the number of man. Seven would be perfection. Um, but that, that's, again, getting too far into it. At this point, it gave me a lot of peace to know that Hannah stuck around with Samuel. She made sure that she was able to talk to the women the, that were praying before the tabernacle. She probably joined those women in prayers a little bit, taught them how to pray without making a bunch of noise. Um, and then in... in um, she would have gone back and forth, and, 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 and she sees Elkanah, her husband, because they have six more kids together. Um, but it's implied here that, that she did that. What's important, though, in verse 11 is that the child served or ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. Eli watched after him, not the two wicked kids, a la verse 12. Um, but Eli is going to be the one that takes care of Samuel. He sees to Samuel's teaching. Samuel is going to get a good Bible-based education growing up. He's going to know the Word of God. He's going to know the law of God. He's going to know the expectations of God. And he's going to use that knowledge to be the first prophet for Israel. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we come together and we just thank you. We lift you up. And we honor you and we exalt you. Lord, we lack the words. So when we see prayers from Hannah on how to exalt you properly, Lord, help us to let those words sink into our heart. Um, we want to be people where that comes out of our mouth, where the exaltation of you is our first thought and instinct, where the will of God is so much more important than our own will, Lord, that we can pour our souls out to you. We can give ourselves up and try to gain life through you and lose the life we have here on this earth because it's not worth anything. Lord, we can achieve the thrones of this world, but they're going to be broken when you come to reign and judge. Lord, we can pray and give and fast in your name. We can prophesy and move mountains in your name. And there will be some who say, where you say, I never knew you. And Lord, what a, what a sobering thought. But Hannah knew you. She knew you backwards and forwards. She knew your character. She knew what you were going to do. She brought new revelation. Lord, we thank you for Hannah and her humble heart. We thank you that in her trials under Penina, she gained the broken heart that came before you and humbled herself before you. 
we just thank you for what, what a gift Hannah is to all of humanity. What a blessing she is. What an inspiration she was to Mary and Peter and Zechariah and me. Lord, thank you for Hannah. And we just thank you for the work that you do through humanity. That that heart is something that you gave to Hannah. That, that, that humility is something you gave to Hannah. And that the coaching and the training and the growth that Samuel's going to get through Eli is done in the house of the Lord. Lord, thank you for that. We just want to serve you. You give us the breath in our lungs, we give it back to you. You give us the resources here on this planet, Lord, they're all yours. You take what you want. Lord, you give us time. You give us minutes in a day to spend. Help them to spend it wisely. To not think of years, but to think of minutes. Lord, help us to redeem time for you. Lord, when we vow to serve you, help us to serve you in the way that you ask for us to serve you. Not in our own way, not in our own make-believe, make-up religion. But Lord, you've asked of us these things. So Lord, help us to read the Ten Commandments and take them seriously. Help us to read your law and take it seriously, not because we are going to get saved under our own strength or under the law. We get that, God. But because we love you and we want to honor you. And Lord, we want to love you and to do that, we, we're going to love our neighbor. But Lord, you come first. Your will comes first. Your law comes first. And Lord, we, we will not get there under our own strength. We get that. Hannah got that. Um, we need you. We know that you judge the hearts. You know you'll divide bone for marrow, Lord, and your word's a two-edged sword. So we humble ourselves and we repent of our sins. We put them in your throne and we hand them to you because we want to serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to break up to pray and divide up and... If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.